the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the March 2015 podcast. This month, a year after the World Health Organization declared an Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we speak to Professor Peter Peart, the school's director and co-discoverer of the virus. I think indeed that we are at the beginning of the end, but nobody knows how long the end will be. We find out where young people in the UK get their information about sex. More young people now are reporting school as their main source of information. And we celebrate one of the winners of this year's Suffrage Science Awards. My one's gorgeous. I think I got the nicest one, which is a lovely necklace. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa was first declared by the World Health Organization in March 2014 and has rapidly become the deadliest ever occurrence of the disease. The virus is now estimated to have killed more than 10,000 people in the region, with the possibility of many more unreported deaths. The school's director, Professor Peter Peart, who was a member of the team that discovered the Ebola virus in 1976, reflected on the outbreak so far the role of the school in tackling the disease and his hopes for the future. The past year has seen an unprecedented epidemic of uh, Ebola hemorrhagic fever. Uh, we never thought that it would come to that point, but for the first time ever, uh, Ebola affected three entire nations, capital cities, over 8,000 deaths, and uh, like 23,000 people who became infected. So that is many times more than the uh, total number of uh, previous uh, Ebola outbreaks victims. What do you think went wrong to turn this from the sort of containable outbreaks that you'd seen before into the, the outbreak on this scale? What did go wrong? Well, first of all, you have to look at the context and uh, uh, the three affected countries come out of decades of civil war or corrupt dictatorship, resulting in a lack of trust in anything that the government does also non-functional, dysfunctional health systems. Liberia had about uh, 51 um, medical doctors uh, registered in 2010 for the whole country. So it's less than uh, one per 100,000 people. And then what's very different from Central Africa is the very high mobility of uh, people in uh, you know, throughout these three countries and including um, in uh, the border areas. The outbreaks uh, were immediately disseminated. And above all, I think it was a slow response, denial from the side of governments and also inaction from the international community with the major exception of uh, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières. I would say since um, particularly October, November, there's good leadership in all three countries. WHO has become very active. Um, the UK has massively supported activities in Sierra Leone and uh, through the military, through the Department for International Development, Department of Health, through Public Health England, uh, academic institutions. And so now I think it's, uh, um, it, it shows that international solidarity still uh, can happen. Uh, it was late, but it has had an impact because now we see a major decline in, um, in new infection and in deaths, particularly in Liberia. It's not over, definitely not. Like in Sierra Leone, in one week, uh, about 50, 60 uh, new infections. Uh, we now are fairly happy with that. It's a, a big change, uh, less, but normally this would be a cause for panic. And so we still have a, a long way to go. 
You went out to Sierra Leone in December. What were your impressions mm. on the ground that you saw of the response that was going on? That was uh, at the time when the response was uh, already quite well organized. You know, there were um, many uh, Ebola treatment centers, Ebola um, coordination centers, regional ones and national ones. I was impressed how well they were functioning. They were managed by the military and uh, were very efficient. What was still an issue, I think, is um, at the community level. Not all funerals were safe. We didn't see that. I was also impressed by a massive behavior change. Nobody would shake hands. It was all touching elbows. That doesn't uh, happen overnight and, and, and show that people were uh, conscious about it. Entire regions were in quarantine. So I was uh, quite impressed with what we uh, saw. Some treatment centers were full of people, but others um, were not yet uh, fully occupied. And uh, so that was, the, let's say, the beginning of the, the peak of the, the outbreak um, in, as far as Sierra Leone is concerned. Do you think this is the beginning of the end and that the systems that have been put in place now are going to stop this kind of outbreak continuing or happening again in that part of the world? I think indeed that we are at the beginning of the end, but nobody knows how long the end will be. We can say it's the last mile, but the last mile sometimes uh, can take 100 miles, as we've seen with, uh, with polio uh, eradication, for example. And uh, um, what may continue to happen is that uh, there will be an, a long and bumpy tail with uh, an outbreak here and there around the funeral or so. What worries me is that um, both in Guinea and in um, Sierra Leone, not so much in, in Liberia, that they still detect cases of people present themselves with Ebola and they came out of the blue. Nobody knew that uh, they were contacts uh, they were not found through contact tracing and active case finding. So there are transmission chains uh, occurring underground that we don't know about. And uh, that is one aspect that I'm worried about. And secondly, is that in Guinea, there are still um, every, nearly every day incidents of violence against um, healthcare workers, against people who are uh, trying to organize safe burials and so on. And, uh, and that continues. And overcoming that suspicion and that hostility in community will be essential to stop the epidemic, particularly in Guinea. Obviously, a lot of emphasis has been put on treating Ebola, setting up treatment centres, optimising treatment for people who are ill. Where are we now with things like vaccines and m new drugs that are being tested? First of all, I think it was right in the beginning to put so much emphasis on uh, treatment want to save lives and we know that with supportive treatment you can uh, reduce mortality from about 70% to sometimes 30-40% but it's also not enough. That's why it's so important to test therapies like with antiviral products. We have not gone far with that. There's only one trial that has um, really shown some efficacy and on a large number of, of patients. The, uh, the others are still very early phase and uh, we wasted a lot of time because of regulatory obstacles and, uh, and, and now the number of cases is declining. But I'm hopeful that we will have data that will make sure that when there's the next epidemic we can really offer some antiviral treatment. On the vaccine front is a bit different. Three candidate vaccines are being um, tested in humans 
They're all are through going through phase one trials and one efficacy trial has started in Liberia. So imagine that we have a vaccine, then we can particularly immunize immediately healthcare workers. And, uh, and that would change how we deal with, uh, with Ebola because the impact of Ebola goes way beyond the people who died. Because when you think of it, uh, 9,000 deaths in um, more than a year in three countries, that's not that many. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sad and it's, it's bad for each individual and their family and so on. But um, uh, probably more women died while giving birth or children from malaria and treated. But the impact of Ebola is because it completely undermines services, health services. Um, over Well over 500 healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, uh, people working in the lab and so on, were killed by Ebola now. So the hospital system shut down, health services shut down, and other services shut down. So that's where a vaccine would make an, an enormous uh, difference. But we first have to test it, and the school is very in involved in Sierra Leone with preparations for a um, vaccine trial with the prime boost vaccine of uh, uh, Johnson Johnson Janssen, it's actually... What would you like to see over the next year? You know, we've looked back on the past year of this outbreak. Where would you like us to be this time next year? First of all, we've got to eliminate Ebola from the human population. So stop this epidemic is a number one priority because as long as we've not done that, it'll be very difficult to get back to normal life. Secondly, I think we urgently need to invest in decent health services for the population, you know, and making sure that certainly people, children and so on, can be uh, treated for treatable conditions. And thirdly, getting back into public health measures, immunization rates be increased, and have a good early warning system so that when the next time Ebola hits or another virus, that we can really act promptly to avoid that it's getting out of hand as it um, got out of hand with the current epidemic. That was Professor Peter Peart, and you can hear an extended version of that interview on the school's website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. New findings from the largest scientific study of sexual health and lifestyles in Britain, published this month, reveal where young people are getting their information about sex and how this is linked to their sexual health and behaviour. As part of the third national survey of sexual attitudes and lifestyles, researchers from the school UCL and Natsen Social Research interviewed nearly 4,000 people aged 16 to 24. We spoke to the school's Wendy McDowell, who conducted the research. This is the third survey that's taken place. So the first survey took place in 1990, the second in 2000, and the third in 2010. Um, and the sim very similar questions were asked in each survey, so we're actually able to track change over time, which is a real strength in the data. And what's uh, encouraging in the, in the latest data is that actually more young people now are reporting school as their main source of information. So we've seen an increase, particularly amongst young men, of reporting school as their main source. So in the first survey, only 28% said school was their, their main source of information. So where, where were they mostly getting their information? Well, from, from less authoritative sources, such as um, friends, first partners, girlfriends, boy, um, first sexual partners, um, and media sources. What about parents? 
Um, parents, well, for young men, parents don't feature very highly in their list of sources. And this is an area where we actually found a difference between the experiences of young men and young women. So young women were more likely to report a parent as a source of information and then go on to say that it was their main source of information. But for young men, fewer reported a parent as a main source and very few, in fact less than 3%, um, said a father um, was their main source of information. So both young men and young women are basically mostly getting their information from school? Well, it's about 40%. So there's still around, it's just under a half of women and just over a half of men are um, getting their sources from, are getting most of their information from sources other than school, a parent or a health professional. Thinking about um, the sources of information, there's a lot of interest at the moment around pornography and the role pornography plays in the kind of sexualisation um, of uh, young people. And we actually found that pornography was a source of information for significantly more men than it was for women. 24% of um, young men reported that pornography had been a source of information about sexual matters when they were growing up compared to only 2.2% of women. Young men and women who reported school to be their main source of information had first intercourse at a later age, an older age, compared to those reporting other sources. Um, we also found that they, uh, for young men and women, that they were less likely to have practiced unsafe sex or to ever experienced a sexually transmitted infection. Now those are the associations we found for men and women. We actually found additional benefits associations amongst women, which suggests that maybe sex education as it currently stands is better meeting the needs of, of young women than it is of young men. So your research is indicating that, if anything, sexual education is a bit more female-focused. It seems to be, from our data, that it's associated with fewer positive outcomes in men. Um, and one of the criticisms of sex education is it's been, it's been too female-focused. It's been too focused on uh, the, the so-called three Ps of pills, periods and pregnancy. And it might be, given the push there's been around reducing teenage conceptions, that much of the onus has actually been um, on young women. But actually there's been, I think, increasingly a recognition that, you know, sex education needs to broaden its remit, to move away from the more biological aspects into relationships, consent, issues around keep, uh, keeping safe virtually and online and offline and that this needs to be done from, from the perspective of young women and young men. Do we know much about what parents actually talk about? We don't know from our data. What our data do suggest is that while we found those who reported school as their main source had first intercourse at a later, at an older age, those who reported parents as a main source didn't. And this suggests to me, and others have suggested in uh, 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 previous research, that parents actually start the conversations 
once they suspect their child has become sexually active, rather than initiating those conversations before. What has your research told you about what the young people want? Well, we um, what's clear from our research is that they want more information about the, the wider aspects of sex and relationship. I mean, there's definitely... The, the, the mechanics and information around contraception and safer sex, the, the need for information is still there, um, but where the, it's the more psychosocial aspects of sexual health that um, young people told us that they wanted m- uh, more information about specifically, and that was for young men and um, young women. And do they want it to come from their school or their parents? Yeah, they, I, mean, I think that's really interesting. You know, when we asked them, so 70% of, of young people said that actually when they were first ready for a sexual experience, they didn't know enough. And when we said, well, where would you have liked to have found that out from? They were very clear in their response that it was school, parents and a health professional. So these results, what they do is they present further support for uh, school-based Uh, sex and relationships education. The goal is to see properly trained teachers of um, sex and relationships education in primary and secondary schools that would reduce the, the, the lottery that we currently see in the delivery of that education so that all young people will receive appropriate uh, education and with it in partnership with their parents. That was Wendy McDowell. The Suffrage Science Awards celebrate the achievements of leading women researchers in the fields of science and engineering. Previous winners of the award nominate the next generation of researchers whose work they admire and pass on specially designed pieces of heirloom jewellery that reflect the suffragette movement. Amongst this year's winners, appropriately announced on International Women's Day, is Dr Anna Goodman, a public health researcher at the school. She spoke to Kat Arney. These are a lovely set of awards that started in 2011. This was marking the sort of 100 year anniversary of the suffrage movement. And they got some artist students in central St Martins to design some beautiful pieces of jewellery using the suffrage colours, so white, violet and green. And then gave these pieces of jewellery to a set of female scientists across a range of disciplines and then the really nice part is every two years the people who currently have the jewellery choose another set of women so each person chooses a woman in science they admire to pass it on to and I was given them this year by as part of a set of quite you know relatively junior researchers or scientists who were selected by a group of more senior women. So I have two questions first is what's the jewellery like and then who gave it to you this year? I mean, my one's gorgeous. I think there's there's several ones. I think I got the nicest one, which is a lovely necklace. It's um, a kind of pendant, sort of slightly lacy silver, a bit like coral with some embedded stones in the green, white and um, purple colours. So it's very nice. I'm going to be too too nervous to, to wear it, really. And it was given to me by Sally McIntyre, Dame Sally McIntyre, who has recently retired but was head of the social and public health research unit up in Glasgow, part of the Medical Research Council, and has always been an absolute hero of mine. I, you know, we never collaborated on any papers, but I'd always read her work and really admire the stuff she did around health inequalities. So I was so honoured to be given it by her. How did you feel when you found out that you were going to get this award from her? What does it mean to you to receive it? It means, it means a great deal, actually. I think it's the, possibly the nicest unexpected email I've ever had, in that I'd actually never heard of these awards until I 
got the email. You know, it's not something you apply for. It's done on a more informal basis. It's really nice. I mean, not only because I really, really admire Sally, but I like a lot the idea of this year having given the brief to give these to women in the kind of, you know, more junior, early postdoc stage, which is where I am. Because I think it's it's actually quite a tough stage in research. I think, I mean, there's lots of tough stages. It's hard doing a PhD. It's, you know, I imagine hard being a professor. But I think the point at which you're in this postdoc world of fairly short-term contracts, low job insecurity, perhaps an expectation of having to move institutions every few years. You know, it is a difficult time, so I think it's nice to me to have got it. When did you receive the award? Tell me about that. So it um, happened as part of an award ceremony at the Royal Society on International Women's Day, so that was a nice kind of touch for it. Tell me about what happened. There were um, the 12 women who were... Um, 12 pairs of women, so women giving 12 women giving piece of jewellery to 12 other women. So they were there with, you know, often family members and colleagues. There were some interesting talks at the start about some famous kind of female scientists um, and, you know, looking back to what it was like to be a scientist in the 50s or 60s and then giving the awards. And then afterwards, there was a kind of a more open discussion about women in science and, you know, why are awards like this still necessary or are they still necessary? It was an interesting evening. It was kind of a nice combination of interesting and informal. And for you, how do you feel about being a woman in science and what could be done to encourage more women in their scientific careers? So I was quite struck by the, the House of Commons... Science and Technology Committee wrote a report about women in science last year where it talked about there have been quite a lot of success at getting women into science, encouraging, you know, bright young women to take up science careers. But then this idea of a leaky pipeline, it, that, you know, it's not always that easy to keep them in science. And it's particularly at my kind of age, post-PhD, women start dropping out, which really resonated with kind of my both experiences and observations of recent years of these postdoc years as I think being quite tough for both sexes. But potentially, particularly for women, if, you know, if the years in which you're trying to consolidate your career, move around a lot, try and get a permanent job at the early 30s, so exactly when many women want to be having families, I think, I think that's difficult. So I think it's, in some ways, my, my recent thoughts have been particularly around these kind of structural issues about career insecurity built into a time which coincides with when women in particular are wanting to start families. At the suffrage science event, there was a little card that people could fill in to say, what thing do you think would help women in science today? Do you have a, a thing that you think would help? Well, I, I didn't write this, but one person wrote more science funding, which um, is, is a self-interested thing to say. But I think in terms of my, my sense that part of it is this, you know, this job insecurity and the kind of uncertainty of it as a career, then I, I think anything that could be done to improve that would be really helpful, of which of course, the reason why it is so competitive is that there's there's scarcity. Tell me a bit about your work. What are you doing at the school? So it's in the Department for Population Health and it's got a particular focus on transport. It's looking at, for example, ways to encourage walking and cycling. So, for example, if you build cycle lanes, do people use them? Is it the same old cyclists who use them or is it new cyclists? Do people increase their total exercise levels or do they cut back on going on to the gym do they drive less so reduce their carbon emissions it's, it's those kind of questions I work on. The whole point about the suffrage science awards is that in two years time you'll have to pass them on to someone else yes. are you starting to think about who you might go for or are you going to spend two years thinking about that? It's an issue I mean I have started to think it was almost the first thing you think of because you do I mean it's I think the last group of women as I said were quite senior women I think they were kind of asked to give it to more junior women. So I, I guess, you know, I'll have to wait to see if they give me a steer. 
you know, it's a lovely task to have to get to pick someone who you really admire and get to pass on the necklace to them. So I, I, you know, I have a long list of people who I admire. So I think the hard thing will be narrowing it down between them. That was Dr. Anna Goodman. As always, you can hear extended versions of all the interviews in this month's podcast by visiting us at lshtm.ac.uk. Next month, more news and latest research from the school. Thanks for listening.